Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Why don't you bring in Professor Feldstein? Let's do that. Professor of Economics at Harvard University, of course, the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and the chief economic advisor to President Ronald Reagan, Professor Feldstein, joining us around the table. Professor, good to catch up with you. It's been a while. Why is deficit spending a good idea when we're going to get payrolls on Friday and unemployment around 4%? Deficit spending is not a good idea. It's never a good idea. But the... Uh, impact of the corporate tax reform outweighs the adverse effects this time around of the increase in the deficit. So I think as a package, it's a deal worth having. There's a lot of doubts around this tax bill, Professor, and a lot of people saying one thing that's guaranteed is debt. What isn't guaranteed is a return from capital spending to uh, CapEx and improved M&A. Why do you see that happening? Uh, I see that happening because if the bill goes through with a 20% U.S. corporate rate, that is going to make investing in the U.S. so much more attractive than investing elsewhere. So we're going to see uh, American firms bringing back capital from the rest of the world, making fewer investments outside the U.S., and we're going to see foreign companies wanting to expand in the United States to take advantage of a tax rate which is much lower than it is in their own home countries. So, Professor, why is now the right time? I go back to the previous point. Unemployment, near 4%. GDP, near 3%. We're quite a far along in, in the cycle as it is. Why so, is now the right time so for fiscal stimulus? So we don't stimulus? need it for a fiscal stimulus. Uh, it, w- it is certainly true that the economy may turn down sometime in the next few years, and we'll be glad to have that fiscal stimulus in place. But you wouldn't do it now for the fiscal stimulus. You do it now because the politics is right, because now is a time when we can get through with the Republicans controlling both houses and the White House, we can get a major tax reform done. Well, let's talk about the politics. The politics was politics of wealth inequality. That's what got President Trump into the White House. Do you see a tax bill that addresses that? I think in the short run, we're going to see people's withholding fall. That is to say, their paychecks are going to go up, so they're going to be happy about that. And in the long run, we're Mm. going to see this increased capital flow to the United States leading to higher productivity Uh, and higher real wages. A real theme, and we'll talk about the dollar dynamics there as well. Good morning, everyone. John Farrell and Tom Keene, Coast to Coast. Good morning, Radio London. Thrilled you're with us. I believe John Farrell uh, will join you uh, in the evening hour, London time. Uh, is that true, John? Sometimes it, it is. You don't um, take five, Wednesdays five, off. five to six. Okay, well, I'm always there. Five to six weeks. Days. Very good. Um, Bloomberg surveillance this morning, brought to you by Invesco. Get timely market insight delivered straight to your inbox from Invesco. Global market strategist Christina Hooper. Visit Invesco.com/hooper to subscribe. Professor Feldstein, what do the Trump politics and the Trump economics and the Trump sort of strong dollar, what will it mean for emerging markets? It's a different emerging markets than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago, isn't it? Well, for emerging markets, it's going to mean, as it does for developed economies, it's going to mean less investment 
coming from the United States, companies keeping more at home. Now, that's not going to be like a complete reversal. Uh, emerging markets, there are a lot of reasons to be investing in emerging markets for American companies, uh, including uh, access to those markets, to the consumers in those markets, and to the workforce in those markets. But I think the lower tax rates in the U.S. will mean less investing in those markets than would otherwise happen. Do you see the jobs coming back? You know, we're essentially at full employment. So the impact of all of this on the number of jobs is not going to be significant. What is going to be significant is the uh, increase in in real wages. We're going to see real wages rising more rapidly and incomes rising more rapidly over the next decade because of the impact of this tax bill on capital formation in the United States. Isn't one half of this bill the jobs bill, though, Professor? Isn't that what it's meant to be? It's sold that way. I think that (laughs) the reality is it's it's a better jobs rather than a more jobs bill. What do you make of the crafting of this bill, Professor, when we wake up one morning and realize the alternative minimum tax is still in the Senate's bill? Many people didn't expect it to be there, but it was. It feels like this was rushed. Was it rushed? Well, in, in one sense, it's not rushed at all. I mean, the House has been working on the structure of this tax reform for years and years. Paul <clears throat> Ryan, when he was the head of the Ways and Means Committee, led the charge. And so this is not something yeah. that they came up with over uh, over the weekend. But then you have to deal with all of the minutiae, all of the, uh, the, the needs to get this or that senator or congressman on board. And, and of course, at the same yeah. time, to stay within the overall 10-year budget uh, allowance. Professor, I wanted to get to this on television and couldn't, so I want to be sure we do now. Stanley Fisher is very big on the percentage change. Do the mathematics of percentage change work at the lower bound? If we say the two-year yield in normal times moved a certain percent, it's a lot different now at these low yields, isn't it? Do you care about percentage change? I don't think of it in terms of percentage change because if you're starting at zero, everything looks like a very big percentage change. And we're almost at zero on a lot of these short rates. So I don't think of that. I think of what's happening to absolute levels of rates and what's happening to real rates. And those are all super low now, and they're going to be heading higher uh, in the next few years. The optimism of Martin Feldstein. The other day, I showed an offspring a black and white video of a guy out in L.A. doing 20-meal team borax ads for Death Valley Days. It became religion. No one knew that Ronald Reagan uh, would change American conservative thought. Henry Olson has written a fabulously controversial book on the conservatives of then and the conservatives of now. George Will calls out a nuanced portrait. Uh, J.D. Vance, uh, of a great and immediate claim, uh, calls it simply an excellent book. Henry, thrilled to have you on. There are eight shades of conservatisms right now. 
Do any of them have anything to do with President Reagan? They all have, uh, it's kind of like the people walking around an elephant uh, blind and saying that the tail means it's a snake and the leg means it's a tree. They all have some roots in Reaganism, but none of them represent the beauty of the whole. The arch uh, fact is, and, and some of us of a certain vintage know this, he came off the plains of the Midwest, a Democrat. He had an internal humility around his fierce combative spirit. Where's the internal humility in the conservative Republican movement today? It's pretty lacking when you take a look at it, that there's a conceit of ideology, that uh, ideas can change the world in a way that, you know, Reagan always thought that ideas served the realities of everyday life. And the love of the average person that really animated Reagan's politics uh, all too often seems absent from modern conservatism. How has this been taken? Have you talked to any of our modern conservative leaders about working class Republicans? I mean, does Paul Ryan actually, I mean, we talk about a tax legislation done for a donor class. Is any of this done for the working class Republican? I think people like Paul Ryan would say that uh, cutting taxes for the corporations and the well-to-do is uh, the way to help the working class person uh, in the long term. But as far as uh, direct um, compassion for today's working class person, uh, all too often that seems pretty absent in the leadership. I have talked to a number of senators and representatives who share my views, but they're not in leadership. Let me ask one more question. I'm going to bring in a distinguished gentleman uh, from London. There's an idea of conservatism in out of World War II, and it was MacArthur Republicans of the Midwest, and there were the East Coast conservatives in that. Is it now more amorphous? Is it now just one conservative blob versus the nuances of two generations? Ago, yeah, there's different strains of conservatism, uh, so it's not quite that uh, way. But you know, there's social conservatism that puts the questions of religious liberty first, and there's liberty conservatism that's still old, the old-time yeah. small government religion. Um, but they're not divided at at war with each other quite the way the yeah. uh, old times were. If you're joining us now, a really an entertaining read, The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism, John Farrell. Thank you, Tom. I'm looking around for that distinguished gentleman from, from London. Where yeah, is he? He's, you're it. I'm it. Yeah. I'm it. What an honor. Thank you. Henry, hello. Uh, Jonathan Farrow here. For, for me, for the working class Republicans, if there's nothing in it in terms of the economic policy to address their woes right now, have they done enough in terms of the cultural issues that they're attached to in the last year? Uh, yes and no. Um, certainly talking about um, uh, patriotism, which is an undercurrent of the president's message a lot. Uh, certainly uh, talking about immigration. Uh, those are things that working class voters tend to care about. But they haven't spoken as much uh, to um, the uh, the broader longing for being part of America. And I think that's something that Trump touched on with Make America Great Again, but it's been yeah. not quite as read as yeah, obviously part of the governing policy. Well, Henry, I asked the question because as far as populism is concerned and, and the plot of the working class right now, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, do you find that is more underpinned by cultural issues, identity issues, political identity, or is it underpinned by <laughs> economics? 
they're two strains of the same uh, thing, is that people who are economically stressed tend to uh, turn to other issues uh, at the same time. Uh, but people who are of working class are finding themselves on the margins, both economically and culturally. And uh, I think issues like immigration that kind of combine the two is, uh, are yeah. particularly important to them. Henry Olson with us, the working class Republican. My important page, Henry, is page 209, where you fold in Ronald Reagan with the mainstream of Democrat politics. This is the Grenada invasion and all that. And you mentioned Scoop Jackson. How do the Democrats respond after the last election to their search for the working class Democrat or the disaffected Democrat that Ronald Reagan took? What does the Democratic Party need to do after they read your book? Well, I think the Democratic Party needs to come in communion with the center. They need to stop uh, talking about the working class people's occupations as things of the past that uh, are going to be cast aside, like manufacturing or mining or uh, or trucking. Uh, and I think they need to uh, take cultural respect for people, that when there was a place for pro-life, pro-gun people in the Democratic Party, it was just a decade ago, and they swept to victory throughout these areas. They, uh, they need to stop representing the elites of San Francisco and Manhattan yeah. and start trying to represent the people who actually have been the base of the Democratic Party for most of its history, the average person. Henry, how do you characterize the group of individuals that last year, when they went into the election, they didn't face a choice between Republican and Democrat, they faced the choice between Bernie Sanders in the primaries and, say, President Trump? For them, it was really binary. They didn't look at this as Republican and Democrat. They were looking at right and left, and they could swing to either or. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that when they had a choice. In a lot of the primaries in America, you don't have to be a registered Republican, so you really can choose. Uh, they overwhelmingly chose Trump as that the white working class person in Michigan who could have voted for Sanders, but in, uh, instead tended to vote uh, in large numbers for Trump. And I think it's because uh, they don't want the top-down social democracy yeah. that Sanders was selling. What do they need to do around the president? I mean, you're a beast of Washington. And our last question to oh, you, Oh, gosh, Mr. I guess that's the kid. You can put that Henry's, on the back of Henry's the... Henry's wondering whether that's an insult. No, he's going to put that on the back of the paperback, a beast of Washington. <laughs> yeah. What do they need, what does the Republican Party need to do to advise the president forward to the midterm elections? What would you change directly with President Trump right now? You know, I think President Trump needs to recover his populist mojo, is that what he's kind of become is a classical uh, Republican uh, in what he's doing. There's not very much on the economic side that wouldn't be coming straight from a Pence or a Cruz or a Bush administration. And his populism is reduced to angry tweets, and that's kind of like the worst of both worlds. Uh, I would tell President Trump he should not go with what they want next, which is a re- uh, make of entitlement programs, but he should go with the bold infrastructure program. He should start doing more like what he was talking about before he was inaugurated, about bringing American manufacturing back. And he should, uh, you know, yeah. be more like what he campaigned on, as <clears throat> the person who's not going to uh, help his friends in no. uh, in the boardroom, but help the person on Main Street. We're out of time. We need to see you in our 99.1 FM Washington studios, Henry, at some point, uh, John Farrow and Tom Keene. Mr. Olson has written a terrific and controversial book with a great cover photo of middle Reagan. It's not the Reagan of the final years. It was the vitality of an actor from California at that time. The book is The Working Class Republican 
Henry Olson, Ronald Reagan, and the return of blue-collar conservatism as well. How foreign it was that discussion, John? To me, it's like everybody knows what we were talking about. No, I don't think it's foreign. I think we experienced it in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, In what way? You saw that in the Brexit vote. I think there was a disillusioned group of individuals outside the metropolitan elite of of London. And within London, they just did not understand what was happening in the rest of the country. Absolutely fabulous. The working class Republican, I'll put it out on social media uh, here today as well. John Farrell, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest from yeah. Mr. Gorman's house? I'm really pleased to say that we've got one of the smartest minds on the street um, for a global fixed income. It's Matt Hornback of, of Morgan Stanley. And Matt, for me, the headline in the session of the last 24 hours, fives, thirties on treasuries, south of 60 basis points. There has got to be a message, some signal in south of 60 basis points on fives, thirties. Well, I think one of the things that we've seen is investors uh, take a little bit of a more confident stance towards the path for Fed policy over the coming quarters, Uh, particularly after the announcement uh, of um, Governor Powell as the next Fed chair. We saw investors really grow um, in their confidence towards the path for Fed policy. So we've got uh, the December rate hike fully priced into the marketplace. People are now pretty pretty sure that we're going to get another rate hike uh, in March beyond that. So uh, people are expressing those views by selling bonds in the front end of the yield curve. If I thought this was going to be sustained, if I thought that the Fed could carry on hiking and the economy would continue to improve, I wouldn't expect to see two fives down at 30 basis points. That doesn't make sense because if you think this can last and the Fed won't be cutting rates aggressively in a couple of years' time, you're not going to see two fives at 30 basis points. You're going to see two fives steeper. I don't see that. I see 30. I see a market that's saying, actually, in a couple of years' time, the Fed's going to have to cut. Well, well, that, that's the magic of, of how markets work. You know, when we're sitting here going through our 2018 year-ahead outlooks, uh, typically, by the time you come to the end of the process, a consensus is developed amongst Wall Street economists and strategists like myself. And typically, by the time that consensus develops... It's in the price. And so what that means is that the outlook for 2018, stronger growth, higher inflation, that's already in the price today. What ultimately ends up moving markets in 2018 itself is any surprises to those to those consensus views and then how the outlook for 2019 develops. And on that front, our economists are, are not as optimistic on 2019 as they are on 2018. You came out of that acclaimed quantitative house Vassar, right? Indeed, I did. did in how in hell did you get from fixed income out of Vassar College? That's like almost original to American education. So interestingly, uh, my my start in finance uh, was in our Tokyo office, Morgan Stanley's Tokyo office. Right. I uh, was an intern there for some time and then uh, moved into the trading, uh, trading Very side cool. of the business. I think that, folks, this is like a huge deal to go come out of the liberal arts bastion of Vassar and to achieve as you have, Matt, I think is just killer. What I'm seeing mathematically is everything's log convex. Everything's got an accelerated force to it. There's way too many curves within the logarithmic space, as John Farrow nicely laid out in the spread market. As John mentioned, I'm sorry, there's a message there. What's the message of the second derivatives right now? 
the, the message is that as we move deeper into the balance sheet normalization cycle, that's another tool the Fed is using to tighten policy. Correct. There's going to be a tightening in financial conditions, which is something, by the way, that New York Fed President Dudley has been looking for. Correct. He's been wanting to engender tighter financial conditions that will eventually impinge on the uh, growth trajectory of the economy. Does the impinge come with a smooth curve and smooth vectors, or are, are we up for instability and jump conditions? Well, things never move in a straight line forever. My guess is that over the course of next year, there will be bouts of volatility, unforeseen, of course. Yeah. And uh, and that will eventually lead to the Fed to stop hiking rates in the fourth quarter of the year. Ma- many Fed officials are on the record as saying they're worried about the curve flattening, and they'd be worried if it's really started to invert. When does the bite point really start to kick in? If we've got twos, tens at around 60 basis points, do they get concerned at 40, 30, 20? I think, I think for some participants, um, the answer will be invariably yes. I, I, it, it depends. I mean, we've already heard from three FOMC participants suggesting that they would not feel comfortable hiking with the yield curve completely flat. We're not there yet, of course. Yeah. But I expect that we will be there by the third quarter of next year. And then you'll start to hear a growing chorus of concern being expressed by FOMC participants. Can we get to my chart of the day, Tom? Treasuries it works on versus, radio. versus two-year bonds. <laughs> for anyone on radio, just picture this. A line just put going it out on Twitter. north, north, John north. John Tucker, teach young Pharaoh how to put it out on Twitter. 255 basis points yeah. is the two-year spread bonds versus treasuries. Is there any oxygen left up there? At this point, not so much. If you actually look at what markets are pricing in for Fed policy in 2018, what you find is that they're pricing in two 25 basis point rate hikes. Now, Morgan Stanley's economist Ellen Zentner thinks the Fed will give us three, and that's roughly where street consensus is as well. Um, But in my analysis of the bond markets, you rarely price more than two-thirds of what the Fed will end up delivering. So in fact, if the Fed does end up delivering three next year, I wouldn't expect the market to price any more than what it already okay. is. Let's, John, this has been great. All this spread analysis and the mathematics that we're alluding to here. Forget about it. I'm at home. I'm out on the back deck. I got a monthly statement from Name the Shop. Price down, yield up. And then there's a second month. And then there's a third month. When does the bond bear market click in? To be frank, I think we've already seen the bond bear market. We, um, in the wake of the um, instability in the UK last year, uh, in the wake of the presidential election or, uh, in 2016, uh, we saw quite a move higher in interest rates and a move lower in bond prices. I think we've seen that market play out, and now it's time for the next phase. That's the phase where Fed policy tightens further, and that's the phase that it eventually leads to higher bond prices, lower bond yields. So you're talking about a bull market in bonds, higher bond prices will click in. A- absolutely. I think that the talk that the 30-year bond bull market is is dead was was way premature. Fascinating. We, can, we, can you come back on this? Can we, we keep him? Can we, well, no, we can't keep him. We he's got to go. Him. He can't he's, stay this for the hour. No, he's got to go get a cell phone call with James Corman. <laughs> Tell Mr. Gorman they're solvent today at Morgan Stanley. This has been fabulous. Matthew Hornbach, please come back for a more extended conversation. He is with Morgan Stanley.
Let me talk about our next guest um, as I can and set this up correctly. I, I was one, Someone once said to me, the only reason I talk nice about McKinsey is so Don Barton will let me into their Davos party. In full disclosure, I show up, I have a drink, and I go home, uh, unlike the surveillance staff who stays until 2, 2 a.m. The McKinsey Global Institute is truly one of the jewels of American intellectual work. On India, they have been absolutely pathbreaking at trying to figure out the mathematics and dynamics of poverty. And they do this across a lot of other themes. Michael Chewy has a privilege of working with Don Barton at the MGI. He's a partner out of their San Francisco uh, combine. And they're thinking about this technology stuff that we're all buried by and what the ramifications are going to be. So this is like, Michael, a view from 60,000 feet. But let me cut to the immediate. Is my iPhone my friend or my enemy? What do you say after 300 pages of research? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I think uh, what we've discovered is that technology is just a lever for being more powerful. So depending on how you use it, it could be your friend or your enemy. But what we really wanted to do is look at the potential impact of these technologies on jobs, what these these technologies that potentially could automate things that people do already, what those might uh, mean for jobs. We looked at that in January, and now we've published a, a sequel report, which really talks about if, in fact, automation will be adopted, increasingly do some of the things that we pay people right. to do, will there be enough work for people to do you, going you forward? You have a prescription, a policy prescription within McKinsey Global Institute. Do you recommend that all nations should Wi-Fi the country? Is that a a valid policy or should that be left to the private industry? Well, we'd never give uh, policy advice. We do talk about different policy options. Uh, We do think that uh, it is necessary in order to have... To, to derive the benefits of these technologies to, in fact, to have more connectivity going forward. Uh, but our most recent re- research has really been around uh, trying to understand if there's enough work for people to do, and if there is, what the transitions might be as, as we go forward, uh, and then what incomes might look like as, as we go forward, as well as these technologies such as robotics and automation and artificial intelligence uh, start to be adapted in the economy. Michael, uh, before joining McKinsey, you were the first chief information officer of the city of Bloomington, Indiana. And I'm wondering if you could bring that experience to bear on this very topic of jobs and automation. Are there municipalities, states, or indeed even countries that have it have a better understanding of what's going to happen and are implementing the types of programs and policies necessary to deal with it before this becomes, you know, a riot in the streets because nobody has a job they want. Well, one of the things that we discovered in our research is even net of automation, uh, there are a lot of scenarios uh, that we can model out which show there's enough work for people to do. Even as the robots and AI start to do more work, there's enough work for people to do, whether it's um, because we have increasing prosperity around the world, another billion people entering the consuming class, aging actually will cause more demand for a potential labor, uh, deploying and developing the technology infrastructure, uh, potentially even paying for what's currently unpaid work domestically. So that what that means is if there's enough work, can we transition people into the work that there is to do, into the new jobs of the future? Do we have any examples of that actually happening? So, you know, what the the... 
in history, the, the, my cause for optimism is that we have been able to um, solve similar scale of challenges. So for instance, moving from the agricultural economy to the manufacturing economy, at the beginning of that story, there was no universal secondary school. We collectively invested in that in something called the high school movement. It was a true social movement. Truth be told, now past the first two decades of life, uh, retraining people at scale in a successful way. It's hard to find a lot of examples of that. We see some of them, whether it's uh, you know what's happening in, in some places in Europe. Singapore has a program. At the same time, we do think this is one of the grand challenges going forward. How can we retrain a lot of people in the mid-career? Now, again, I'm an optimist. I live in California. I'd say we've done something similar before. We have a different challenge now, and I'm hopeful we can do it, but it will require dedicated investment and effort to do so. Can you give us any, uh, any insight into what has been going on in China in this effort? Because you know, if you have uh, a workforce that is the size of many countries, uh, your challenges might be different just on the, the scale and the speed with which you have to move, particularly when you have a demographic challenge coming out of that one-child policy. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, number one, I think one thing that we see in China is, you know, they are trying to adapt to adopt these technologies as quickly as possible because they realize they'll need the increased productivity, which will allow them to continue to grow economically. But as you said, you know, as a country of one and a half billion people, its workforce is or very soon will already be declining in yeah. size. And so again, that retraining <clears throat> That retraining uh, uh, imperative is, is extremely yeah. strong for them as well. Uh, quickly here, what's the big report you have coming out at the beginning of the year wrapped around Davos and the enemies? Is the MGI, do you, the McKinsey Global Institute, do you have an important report on a given nation coming out? Well, this this report is global, and, and we do think that this report will form some of the discussions that will go into okay. Davos as well. Very good. Michael Chu, thank you so much. Michael Chu uh, with McKinsey Global Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.